It's an all too familiar arrangement, working many jobs from many locations with not quite enough income from any one of them. The popular impression being that young people, oh, they want it that way. For too many though, it's hardly a choice. And the reality of the experience is far from the liberation that is implied by the term side hustle. Short-term contracts, uncertain to be renewed, but then often are, working for quote-unquote exposure or experience, or the invisibility of the actual resources required to network and put yourself out there. Just going to the dentist to say pull a tooth requires a patchwork of employment. In this episode, we explore whether this perceived flexibility comes at the expense of security, health benefits, or even a future. And whether it's a choice or not, is there a way to extend employment standards and protections to the new world of work? I'm Asma Malik, and this is Avocado Toast, a podcast from the Atkinson Foundation. From researchers to activists to people who are living it, we want to build the movement towards decent work in every sector. Millennial Miss, prepare to be busted. Born and raised in northern Ontario, Jenny was taught at an early age to advocate for the equal rights and freedoms for all, often attending rallies with her parents. She has been with the Sudbury Workers Education and Advocacy Centre, or SWEC for short, since January 2015, first as an outreach worker, then as executive director, and now as a member of the board of directors. Working with the center has provided Jenny with the ability to exercise her passion for organizing, education, and creating lasting, positive change in Sudbury. I spoke with Jenny on the phone. Here's our conversation. So my name is Jenny Forte, and I would just say I'm a community organizer uh, with the Sudbury Workers Education um, and Advocacy Centre located in Sudbury, Ontario. So SWEC um, it works on kind of two major campaigns in Ontario, so we're part of the larger fight for 15 and fairness. Um, and then the other campaign we work on is the Living Wage Campaign, um, and in Sudbury we're just recalculating it. So last year it was $16.80. 18 cents for a family of four in Sudbury and that's what both parents needed to be making in order for a family of four to kind of live comfortably and have access to you know things uh, things that you need now um, in order to be safe and happy and contribute fully to the community. Um, I grew up in a family um, that was really involved in the labor movement so I got really involved when I was little and I was taught at a young age um, to always fight for the rights of others. But it wasn't till I was really working um, in retail that I really saw, you know, a lot of the inequalities firsthand, you know, rather than just hearing them or or kind of, um, you know, seeing them through other people's eyes. Like, I'll give one example. Uh, I worked for a really large uh, outdoor sporting retailer on big sale days. They would get us pizza at times. We were often told that if we had a piece of the pizza, then we were actually uh, giving up the right to our our 30 minute break. Um, so staff, you know, would go out, they'd be beat, they'd be just physically, ex- emotionally exhausted. You know, they're getting yelled at by customers, they're running around tripping over um, boxes and shoes and stuff like that. Um, and when they get that 30 minutes, you know, they, they just want to eat. Um, so that pizza was just right there, but 
you know, by taking that pizza, they'd be giving up their their rights under the Employment Standards Act. I had mentioned it to one of my uh, supervisors, um, and I was pulled into an office and actually told that I was being really negative. And I was just awestruck. Like, I was just like, what do you mean I'm being negative? You, you're the ones who are telling us that we have to give up our, our rights, like our breaks. If we want a piece of pizza, like you're you're pretty much tempting, right, staff with, with food in, in order to get them back on the floor. And they're like, well, we're paying you for those breaks. I'm like, that's not the that's not the issue. The issue is you have staff that are tired. Like, you know, if you're not giving them that 30 minutes to rest, and you you have a 10 hour day, it actually like, you know, you can see health and safety issues can can happen more often. Or you know, we're not giving the quality of services that that you want us to. So it's affecting everybody. The employers actually heard me talking about unions and stuff like that. And to me, um, I, I never really thought twice about it because it was just such a natural part of my everyday, um, you know, jargon at home. It was what we talked about. That created issues as well. I mean, ultimately, I chose to leave. Um, I left, actually, to, to come back to, to work in northern Ontario to work at uh, the Workers' Centre, SWEC. But I had actually heard that uh, several staff actually filed employment standards claims or threatened to go to the labor board um, or the ministry of labor I should say you know a lot of the older workers would be like you know it's just they they seemed a little bit more upset that they were still having to work this much in order to you know just get by still like you know we had workers there I think who were um, in their 60s and uh, I think it was just more disappointing to them that they still had to do this that they weren't able to you know kind of step back and retire like some of their other peers were a lot of the workers there had you know multiple degrees like we had uh, like my I have two degrees I have a degree in uh, teaching and I have a degree in women's studies and then you know many of my friends and co-workers there you know a lot of teachers but a lot of geography majors you had sociologists you had um, it, like uh, pilots actually, um, people with pilot license working and stuff. And, you know, they were just upset that they couldn't find decent work, full time, maybe unionized, but just something that would actually help them pay off their student loans and really kind of get ahead and contribute. Because I think ultimately that's what we all want. We just want to be able to feel like we're contributing. It, it's really hard to, to talk about too, in a, in a sense. Just just like, it, we often forget to, to really talk about the things that connect us, but those personal, the personal things, you know, rather than just, you know, you know, this is why we need sick days or this is why we need, you know, a $15 minimum wage, but we forget to really tie in those, those personal things because they do beat us down. They do, you know, exhaust us. And a part of today, I think many millennials just think that, well, that's just that's just the way it is. So it's not that, you know, we don't want to talk about it. It's just kind of, I think we're programmed not to. It's just like, well, you know, how many times have you had somebody come up to you and say, well, you know, back 40 years ago, you know, workers were expected to do this and this and this, and that's just how it was. And you guys need to suck it up. Like, I'm just, it's just really defeating and really lonely. So I think that's why 
you know, social media has become such an important tool for youth and I think for everybody really these days. I think actually every single generation of youth have been fighting for some kind of individuality um, and a kind of recognition. But I think that myth just that, you know, we don't want that flexibility or it's just kind of ridiculous because that's forgetting to look at the fact that we are all individuals like myself like I want I want that full-time work I want to get up at nine and you know be back at five uh, you know I want that 30 minutes of lunch break at this time and I don't think that's a lot to ask for like it really isn't um, but then I have friends you know who really you know what they want to do is they want to you know create their own business so they're able to have that flexible um, you know workload just because they they're so active outdoors or they you know they want to travel and stuff like that it's you know really emotional for me uh to talk about just because um a family you know i came from a really strong family so there was no doubt growing up that i i wanted to someday start a family of my own um i had always thought that it was going to be much sooner in my life than now, but I'm still not able to kind of start a family. Um, so I, I don't think it's you know wrong for me to want uh, stable income and decent work. I have a lot of people that come up to me and just say, well, you know, it'll it'll work itself out. You should have kids now. You should do this now. And it's just like, well, no, because I want that time to be enjoyable. I don't want to have to worry about paying off my student debt when I have, you know, a toddler who, you know, might need extra medical care that, you know, I have to pay for and that I can't afford or, you know, if something were to happen, you need to be prepared for those things. And I, I want to just be able to give my children the same things that my parents were able to give me. Um, but they, both my parents had full-time, you know, really good jobs. And I'm getting emotional right now, but it's just something that really saddens me because it's something I want so bad. And as I get older too, you know, physically, like it, it's, it becomes more dangerous for me to, to wait too. And there, there could be more complications. So I look at the whole medical side of it. You know, I do want to stay in Sudbury. Um, this is where my family is. Um, this is where my home is. You know, I've, I've lived in Ottawa. I've lived out um, in Western Canada as well. And I've, I've always uh, wanted to come back. You know, it's a part of me um, as much as I am a part of it. What a lot of youth are telling me me, um, you know, when I go into schools is that they're not getting paid properly. They'll drive 45 minutes to get to work to be told that their shift is over, or they'll take the bus for an hour and a half to get to work to be told that, you know, that their shift got cancelled or that, you know, it's only a three-hour shift rather than an eight-hour shift. We have unpredictable weather. It's a lot about the underfunding of our public services. The big thing in Northern Ontario is like, and I've heard this from many youth, is you need a car, you need a car to get to work. Well, if I work at a precarious, you know, minimum wage job, well, now it's better, but, you know, before at $11.60, 
I'm basically just working in order to pay my gas, in order to pay my car. Because there's not a lot of work in the outer areas of Sudbury, a lot of the youth are forced to kind of come in. But at the same time, if you know, we were talking about family and growing and stuff like that, the houses that we can afford in, in Sudbury are in those outer areas of town. So it's kind of like this weird relationship. I've had a lot of friends who have, you know, um, left um, either for school or for job opportunities, but I'd say that a good handful of them have actually come back um, just to help facilitate that growth and just make it into a place that, that we know it, it already is, but to, to help show the rest of Ontario what we are. You should be able to make a living wh where you are. Like, you shouldn't have to move across the country. Like, we all know there's work in the oil sa sands, and I've had many friends, you know, go and work on the pipeline. But, you know, at what cost? They're, they're, they're leaving their whole family behind just so that, you know, they could buy a house maybe and maybe that's what maybe that's what they want but I'm sure there's other impacts you know on you know on social level that's not being looked at Fess Bednar chaired the expert panel on youth employment for the federal government in 2017. A proud millennial wonk, Bednar has also completed the Action Canada and Civic Action Diversity Fellowships. She is the co-host of Detangled, a pop culture and public policy radio show. I spoke to Vass about what's actually different now with youth employment and why it matters. Uh, my name is Vass Bednar. My real name is Vassiliki. Vass is more of a kind of a street name or my rapper name. My work title by day is I'm a senior associate of public policy at Airbnb for the Canadian team. And recently I chaired the federal expert panel on youth employment. I was the chair. So I'm going to start off by asking you if you've ever been precariously employed. Yeah, that's a good question and an interesting one. Um, only because when I started chairing the panel, I kind of uh, came out and said that I experience unpredictable work. I experience short-term work. I'm kind of trapped, which is a little bit more of an emotional word, in um, white-collar contract work. So while I've been lucky in that I haven't had long periods of unemployment. I don't have the predictability that a generation ago, somebody in my in my profession, in my world of work, could have counted on. In a way, what I still experience with work actually is I think familiar to many and uh, shows up in the data in a peculiar way. It's, it's what uh, our uh, panel report calls uh, a quiet crisis. What from that experience, what coming out of that report, what, you know, conversations that you had through the process that, that shocked you maybe? The messiness of the youth employment system, it's inherently intergovernmental. So the, the feds have retained policy jurisdiction for youth employment. A lot of the policy levers are provincial. So one thing that I think we struggled with as a panel, and I'll say that it was surprising, was just our limitations in terms of where we could point to really productive interventions, be they low-hanging fruit or more substantive kind of long-term policy work. Uh, what surprised me, um, there were employers who were kind of banging down our door with examples of how they, as larger institutions, wanted to help lead the way, lead by example. How were they already incubating projects to target vulnerable youth, to give them 
uh, extra training, get them, you know, working at companies with the recognition that these young people may not stay forever. There's always that trade-off and tension between how much to invest in a young person. You know, anyone could take a look at my LinkedIn, why not? And and maybe think, hey, like, is she to be trusted? Is she going to stick around? Is she worth training up? Because um, she never really had a job for more than like two years and a bit. Um, and is that a is that a function of an entire generation and their emotional attitudes, or is that a function of the labor market and a kind of changing bargain between the employer and the employee? And that's a, a really important point. And you know, you can have the perspective that you know, young people, millennials are like job hopping. And one thing that you know we're kind of tackling and that we've heard many times over is that you know it's flexibility. Young people want flexibility, right. and that's what this is about, right? Not making the investment in the, in them, which is probably mm-hmm. uh, more common than not, or not uh, counting on them to be there for a very long time, and having their expectations about what work should be follow that. Um, Do you think that's uh, something that holds or do you think that's um, a myth worth busting? I totally think it's a myth worth worth busting in the sense that when we talk about flexibility at work, I think we're talking about autonomy and trust. So yeah, this generation maybe is more used to digital tools, flexible working, be that in terms of different working spaces or the ability to decide when they're working and when. Um, It's also a function of how people are able to experience the post-secondary sector, right? A lot of young people have very limited employment opportunities where they want to inform their career and their paths. And it can be really tough not just to secure something only for the summer, but really to secure something that's in line with your interests and your training. In speaking with young people, they're very aware of the changing labor market that they face. It's not a surprise that um, the world of work is changing, that there will be jobs, you know, that are created that haven't been there before. Um, There's this looming threat of automation and artificial intelligence and machine learning and, you know, that will have a a fundamental loss in in some areas of of work. But the the thought, the idea that young people are immune – uh, to this or, you know, blissfully unaware because they're busy updating Facebook is really unfair. A lot of people asked us, in as friendly a way as possible, why now? What's different now? Why does this matter now? And they sometimes wanted to test us and other times perhaps needed to be convinced. One of the most important differences, um, aside from more young people being employed in contract work, more young people being underemployed, Uh, has to do with the digitization of the labor market. So on the one hand, it's a really good thing. But I think we have this implicit idea that we've democratized the labor market because it's online, because you can apply to a job in your sweatpants on a Sunday night, you know, with the TV on, you have all this information at your fingertips. What it's also done is it's placed more of an emphasis on social capital, because there's a flood at those early level jobs of applicants, more so than ever before. And again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's good. You don't have to walk around your neighborhood looking for help wanted posters, but I still see help wanted posters, by the way. And we've started to tell young people this, that social capital is inherently part of the job search. And I think we've done it in a way that's really uncritical. And I think we're telling, back to your point about myths, what myths do I want to bust? I'd rather bust the myth that the way you get a job 
is by writing a nice cover letter and submitting your CV. That's not necessarily the best message to give young people. Now we're telling people, have coffees, you know, ask people, meet people, and forcing many people to seek false relationships and putting them through these extra hurdles because we know that social capital matters. I don't want to suggest that over the generations, social capital is something that's new. It's absolutely not. But what can we do to make the job search process and the hiring process more equitable, more fair, more neutral? That's something I'm really excited about and the panelists are excited about too. And so to that point about social capital versus, you know, networking of the past, right? I mean, I remember um, in university and going to the career center and they're like, come to these networking events and then you can meet the people who will get you the job, right? I I think that it's like, you know, advice from from time. and not to say that it was it was right then necessarily, right? Yeah. But we're becoming more conscious about the way that that limits people's opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, that our conscious and unconscious biases then reinforce and play out uh, inequities that yeah. are that are in the system. Yeah. Um, what are some of the ways of of breaking through that, or that you saw uh, through your role that young people were doing that themselves? People are interested in mentorship. But we found that situations where it was more of a group mentorship setting, people that peers, young people could be familiar with in a subset, they were more interested in the quick hits. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, More opportunities for job tasting, uh, which is a phrase I learned. And maybe it sounds kind of gross. But, you know, when you think about it, it's tough to get exposure to all these different kinds of, of roles that are out there, helping people just kind of see, like, what is it like to work in particular professions? How do you incentivize businesses to take on young people? What's the value proposition? And I think it goes back to the need for partnerships to have employers at the table. Another thing that's really different for this generation is the growth of the third sector, of nonprofits, of social entrepreneurship. We have more small and medium-sized enterprises in Canada than ever before. That's fantastic. Um, But these are institutions that are pretty small. Arguably, the barriers to entry might be a little bit lower, but there's not necessarily the mobility that people may have counted on a generation or two ago. Wages have largely stagnated. The cost of living is going up. What does that mean for how people feel about work and how their early experiences can color that relationship with work overall? How long does a generation need to pay their dues before they have the comfort that they'll have a job for three to five years? Uh, Now we're seeing the millennial generation uh, try to plan having families. Many are families. Um, That's a whole new ballgame when it comes to a generation that has had more student debt than before, It's taking longer to build their careers, has stayed in school longer, which is a good thing. You know, the economic geography of this country is changing and has been changing. And I I know that's not novel and it's not new to say, but it's part of who benefits and how and how are people getting their foot in the door and how do we support our young people. When when we care about, you know, flexibility, what does that mean? Actually, flexibility might mean that somebody who's taking two or three buses to get to this entry-level job and build their career isn't penalized for showing up 10 minutes late. Um, That could be an interpretation of flexibility. It doesn't need to be 
working from home, working you know anywhere around the world, who gets to have flexible work is another great question. Can you talk a little bit more about those differences in in geography and how that impacts people's access to work, their capability to work at all, and the opportunities that come from that? Sure. So uh, a hardcore economist will will take a look at the 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 country and say, okay, in this region there are uh, lots of job openings, lots of opportunities. Uh, in this other region, there are a lot of people who are looking for work between the ages of, uh, say, 15 and 25. Ugh, let's just make it 20 and 25. Ergo, these 20 to 25-year-olds should just totally um, displace themselves, move and get these jobs and will be matched and Bob's your uncle. Um, with young people, uh, though they are at the most kind of flexible time in their lives, right? If you don't have dependents and, you know, you're you're able to to be uprooted. We heard from a lot of young people who reminded us that their communities um, are their networks. It is where they have relationships. It is where they want to start out and explore what they're good at and what they like. And when I go back to the point about, you know, job changes. So this was a while ago now. It was kind of, I think it was two years ago. I think it was fall 2016, um, our finance minister, Bill Morneau, talked about the reality that Canadians should expect to have more job changes over their career. And he was really taken to task for this. Personally, I found that refreshing in terms of he was reflecting a reality in the data and fundamentally saying, what does government need to do as a result? What has changed in a couple of generations? I'll tell you what hasn't changed. Universities. Right? To a certain extent, colleges pride themselves on being nimble and, and bringing in par- practitioners. So I'll, I will take an opportunity to pick on universities. They're a pillar of youth employment. Uh, university education used to be a ticket to the middle class. It's not necessarily anymore. Um, but when you talk about flexibility, adaptability, um, working at different paces, universities are so far from supporting and facilitating that. And if they're not willing to... Uh, become less traditional, I think they're doing not just young people, they're doing our future economy a huge disservice. Um, I don't really understand why it still takes four straight full-time years to get a BA. Um, That said, universities are doing some great things when it comes to de-risking entrepreneurship. We're seeing, seeing much more incubation hubs, you know, accelerators. Uh, They have kind of fancy names that often talk about innovation. And that's great because more young people are curious about being, be it entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial. And that's something we heard from young people and wanted to reflect and struggled with in terms of what's a policy that supports that. To a certain extent, I think entrepreneurship is really just a function of access to capital and a good idea. Um, but if universities can help train and prepare and um, de-risk that, it's amazing. What does the future of decent work look like to you? Decent work's a really big preoccupation for us at, at Atkinson. Love to hear your thoughts. Um, decent work for young people, I mean, first and foremost, to my mind, fundamentally means that we make sure young people are getting paid for the contributions they make. Canada's done a pretty good job eliminating unpaid internships. What Canada hasn't done a good job with is replacing uh, the unpaid internship with an appropriate job tasting opportunity. Young workers, you know, wherever you are between 15 and, and 29, and I am not quite in that range uh, any longer, 
deserve to be valued in the workplace for the contributions that they can make and invested in. Someone has to do it. You have to get your start somewhere. And I think we also need to do more to value the employers that are actively looking to create those opportunities. And, you know, coming off of all of this experience, being being chair of this panel, uh, the, uh, the insights and perspectives that you gained through that, how are you contributing to the future of decent work now? It's a great question as an individual. Um, part of how I contribute as an individual is by making some of the same points over and over again to different audiences. Um, persistence and patience are two of the most important and, for me, most uh, challenging aspects of the public policy process. I really used to think that good ideas just won the day, maybe just tweet it out and obviously someone in power would see it and be like, that's amazing, I'll just do that. Um, apparently that's not how it works all the time. What do I do as an individual? I feel guilty. I should probably be doing more, actually. I should reflect on this this evening and uh, try to set a goal or, or be a little bit more impactful. I mean, I, w- I wave the, the report around and I use our youth panel hashtag a little bit, but I, I could be doing more here, right? Well, we're definitely grateful for, for your uh, persistence and consistency around raising these issues. And I can I can name something that you are doing. You are the co-host of an awesome show on CIUT. Oh. And it's also a podcast that I listen to, mm. Detangled, which absolutely lives up to its description of Smart Talk with a millennial bent. Oh, thank you. Uh, and Amazing Lady Guests, which is also really awesome. And where can uh, where can people find you? I don't have Facebook, but I know what it is. Uh, you can really only find me on Twitter at Vasby. Thank you so much for asking. It's not just that millennials desire or value flexibility in work. It's increasingly a requirement to make ends meet. CBC's Pollcast recently reported that millennials will be the biggest cohort of voters in the next federal election and that whoever has the most success in tapping into their support will vastly improve their chances of winning. So how will we use our collective voice to make decent work the ballot box issue? Thanks for listening. On the next episode, we'll unpack the myth that millennials don't want kids. Avocado Toast is produced by Katie Jensen with production assistance from Yasmin Maturin. It's hosted by me, Asma Malik. You can find our show notes at atkinsonfoundation.ca slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at AtkinsonCF. Avocado Toast is the first podcast series on Atkinson's Just Work It platform for and by millennial workers. 